Good morning, friends. Today I want to talk to you about life in the Spirit. I'm going to start with Romans 8, verses 5 to 17. It's been said that this chapter is the consummating Scripture. It's that place where certain key doctrines in the New Testament find their ultimate expression. See, Romans 8 begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. And in between, there's no defeat. I think there are two primary doctrines found here. One is the doctrine of Christian assurance. The other is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And no other chapter mentions the Holy Spirit as much as Romans 8. It's the heartbeat of what the Bible says about life in the Spirit. Now, how important is life in the Spirit? Well, it is the single most important lesson a believer can ever learn. I mean, think about that and about all the things you need to know as a Christian. It certainly puts the Holy Spirit in a new light. Of course, there are many ways of living the Christian life. There are seminars and books and study guides, each offering a distinctive perspective. And because there are so many different ideas floating around out there, let me mention at least three faulty ways of trying to live the Christian life. Faulty way number one, trying to live the Christian life by a set of rules. Do this, don't do that. Do this, this, and this, but don't do this or this or this. I mean, there are many people whose view of the Christian life is just a list of do's and don'ts. For some, it's simply the Old Testament law warmed over and brought into the Christian church. The problem of living by the rules is that it can lead to legalism. And legalism is any attempt to please God based on what you do in the flesh. Faulty way number two is thinking you can live the Christian life by a formula. And we've all heard those formulas, you know, three ways to answer prayer, four keys to Christian victory, five ways you can walk in the Spirit. I mean, bookstores are just filled with formulaic admonitions for living the Christian life. The problem with that formulaic Christian life is that it can produce mechanical Christianity. And faulty way number three is, you know, some people live the Christian life by seeking for an experience. By that I mean by seeking a deeply moving, life-changing, earth-shattering emotional experience with God. There's only one problem. The experience doesn't last. If you try to live according to experience, you're going to either give up the Christian life altogether, or you're going to be on an emotional roller coaster. You're going to be constantly going up and down. So, rules lead to legalism, formulas lead to mechanical Christianity, and experience alone leads to an emotional roller coaster. But something needs to be said at this point, and that's, first of all, rules are good. I mean, after all, do not steal is a rule. That's a good rule to live by. Thou shalt not bear false witness is another rule worth living by. So rules are not completely bad. And second of all, formulas can be very helpful. I mean, you discover five ways to pray. That's great. You discover three ways to be filled with the Spirit. Good. Formulas can be helpful. And third, experience matters. I mean, there are times and places where God visits his people in tremendous emotional power. Most of us who have been with the Lord for any length of time have had those moments when you're alone or in a small group or a church service when God has just met you with great power. We don't ever want to say that experience is not important. Now, rules, formulas, and experience have their place, but taken alone, they lead to substandard Christian life because they tend to lead you away from the most important thing. God has given us something better than rules, better than a formula, better than experience. God has given us the Holy Spirit. If you want to know where the Christian life is found, how to live in victory, then you must learn how to live in, by, and through the Holy Spirit of God. 
but that leads to the natural question, how does the Holy Spirit work in my life? Now, somebody said it's the difference between being in a car or on an elevated train. A car runs on the principle of storage. You put gas in the tank, you drive it, you burn the gas, and when you're out, you stop, get more gas, and on and on. You're constantly running and stopping and filling and refilling. On the other hand, an elevated train runs on the contact principle. You have the two rails on the outside and the electrified third rail in the middle. Now, what keeps the train going? It's the contact with that third rail in the middle. It will go and go and go and never stop. Now, too many people think that walking with the Spirit is like riding in a car. You get filled with the Holy Spirit, and you get run down, and you get filled up again, and you get run down. So they're constantly up and down, up and down, being filled, being empty, being filled, being empty. But that's not the Christian life of the New Testament. The New Testament tells us that the Holy Spirit is always there. Our job is to stay in contact. When we stay in contact with the Holy Spirit, he continuously provides the power we need for effective Christian living. Now, with that as a background, we're going to look at Romans 8, 5 to 17, where we're going to discover three gifts of the Holy Spirit that are given to every believer. These are not things that you should seek if you are a believer. These are things given to you at conversion. You have them and live on the basis of the fact that they've been given to you. So, three gifts of the Spirit. Gift number one, the gift of a new mind. In verses 5 to 8, it says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nat- that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So you see, friends, there are two ways, and only two ways, of living in this world. You can live according to the flesh, which leads to death, or according to the Spirit, which leads to life. There's no alternative three. As our text makes pretty clear, those two ways of living are diametrically opposed to each other. The flesh is on one side, the spirit on the other. Now, these two ways of life are constantly moving in opposite directions. Now, let me give you three practical applications of this first truth. First, when you encounter Jesus, he gives you a new way of thinking. I mean, how many of you are familiar with the phrase, worldview? See, a worldview is a comprehensive philosophy of life. It's the way you look at life. It's how you make your ethical judgments about right and wrong. It's how you look at everything that happens around you. Um, And and everybody has a worldview. But there are only two worldviews. There is the secular or humanistic worldview, and then there is the truly Christian worldview, or we might even call it the biblical worldview. There's a Christian way of thinking, and there's a Christian way of speaking, and a Christian way of acting, and there's a Christian way of approaching the problems of life. See, God has given you a new mind so that you might develop a thoroughly Christian or biblical way of thinking. Now, have you ever heard it said that he or she loves God with their mind? Now, we don't talk much about that in evangelical circles. We tend to be much more heart-oriented. We speak more about loving God with our heart, but remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12. Um, He said, the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. See, when you meet Jesus, he will change the way you think. 
the second subpart of this is one part of following Jesus is having your mind continually transformed. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the Greek word is a form of the word <clears throat> metamorphosis, the change of shape that takes place within a cocoon whereby a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. So let a mental metamorphosis take place in your mind. Let the very shape of your thinking be changed by the renewing of your mind. Now, how does that happen? I know of only one way in which your mind can be transformed. It must be filled with the Word of God. I mean, spiritual metamorphosis takes place by the careful, intentional, repeated, deliberate, thorough study of the biblical narrative. God gives us his word so that it would be a spiritual change agent in your mind. And as you study the Bible, it would change the way you think. And as your thinking changes, so your life will slowly change. And third, we need Christians who will serve God with their minds. If you know Jesus, it ought to make a difference in every area of life. The way you speak, talk, write, relate, and the way you make decisions in the public arena. If you know Jesus, that will radically affect the way you approach the great moral decisions of life. Nothing will be simply private or personal. There's no such thing as a purely private Christian faith. If it doesn't affect all of life, how can your faith be called truly Christian? That means that we don't need lawyers who happen to be Christian. We need truly Christian lawyers. We don't need teachers who happen to be Christian. We need truly Christian teachers who will bring their faith into the classroom. We don't need businessmen who happen to be Christian. We need truly Christian businessmen who will let their faith in Jesus shape every decision they make. We don't need nurses who happen to be Christian. We need truly Christian nurses who treat patients differently because they know Jesus. We don't need doctors who are born again on the weekends. We need doctors who will express their Christian faith seven days a week. For too long, friends, we who have been given new minds have been too willing to check them at the door as we leave church on Sunday morning. We think like pagans during the week, but like Christians on Sunday morning. And no wonder the world is little impressed with our Christianity. They've never seen the real thing in action. Now, friends, you were given a new mind so that you could make a difference for God. And too many of us are sitting in the bleachers when we ought to be fully engaged in the arena of life. We're spectators when we ought to be in the ball game. See, God gave you a new mind so that you can be a difference maker <clears throat> for the kingdom. Now let's move on to the second gift, and that's the gift of a new nature. In verses 9 to 11, it says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. See, verse 9 gives us a clear definition of what it means to be a Christ follower. A true Christ follower is one who has the Spirit of Christ living in him. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So when you say, Lord Jesus, I want you as my Savior, the Holy Spirit answers that prayer. The third person of the Trinity comes to live with you. He becomes incarnate in your life. He becomes what I call resident president. 
That's what Paul means when he uses the phrase, in the Spirit. And to be in the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit himself moves into your life. He actually and literally lives within you. Now, these verses suggest two direct implications of this truth. Uh, The first implication is, because the Holy Spirit has given you a new nature, you actually have a brand new life. That's the meaning of the phrase, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. The Holy Spirit makes your spirit come to life. The seeds of death have been planted in your body, and that's why it eventually wears out and dies. And if you live long enough, you're going to die sooner or later. The body is dead because of sin, yet God has placed life, and that's eternal life, resurrection life, on the inside through the Holy Spirit. Dying on the outside, yet new life on the inside. We die, yet we live. We waste away, yet we live forever. Seeds of life spring up where death once reigned. Though our bodies perish, our spirit lives on with God. That's the wonder of the gospel. Where death once reigned, life now reigns within. In implication number two, we have the promise of future resurrection. The spirit who raised up Jesus will one day raise up your mortal body out of the grave. Verse 11 is an explicit promise of future resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit who presently lives within you is like a down payment on God's future deliverance. Now, do Christians die? (laughs) Yeah, like everybody else. But death for us is not the end. When your body is laid to rest, your spirit goes to be with Jesus. When Jesus returns, your body will be raised from the dead, immortal, incorruptible, eternal, never more to die, never more to decay, never more to waste away. So you're going to die someday, and we'll go out to the grave, uh, have a nice service, lower your casket into the ground, we'll say some words, we'll maybe sing a song and level off the dirt and put up a headstone, and we'll go back to your house and have a party. But, and this is a huge but, when we put you in the ground, that's not the end. If you know Jesus, that's only the beginning. Sometimes we think that salvation means nothing more than going to heaven. But it's not as if you are some spiritual ghost, a disembodied spirit floating among the clouds forever. Absolutely not. By virtue of the promises of God, the work of Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit, when you die, you will not stay dead forever you will one day experience a glorious resurrection. And we have the promise that if God raised his son Jesus from the dead, he will by that same spirit raise you from the dead. Now here's the third gift. The third gift is a new identity. In verses 14 to 17 it says, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, Paul uses two different phrases to describe believers. He calls us sons of God and God's children. Now, there's a slight difference, although sons are children and children are sons. The term child of God speaks of an intimate relationship you have with God. God's children call him Abba, which is an Aramaic term meaning daddy. And because we're God's children, we can speak to God the same way little children speak to their earthly fathers. 
The term son of God refers to your official status within God's family, your privileged position. That's your new identity in Christ. You're no longer a son of Satan. You're now a son of God. You're no longer in the flesh. You're now in the spirit. You no longer live according to the world, but you live according to God's word. You are now a blood-bought son of God. Now, this truth is radical, it's supernatural, it's far-reaching. I mean, radical because your life has experienced the greatest change that could ever be. Once you served Satan, now you serve God. Once you walked in darkness, now you walk in light. Once you followed your own desires, now you live to please God. Once you were dead, now you're alive. That's a pretty radical change. It's supernatural because only God could do something like that. It's far-reaching because it touches every aspect of your life. And our text actually lists five privileges as a son or daughter of God. Well, first of all, personal guidance by the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 14. To be led by the Spirit is a very personal term. It means to be led by the hand, personally escorted by a tour guide. The Holy Spirit takes your hand, leads you through the difficulties of life. And so many Christians have said, if it had not been from the Lord, I wouldn't have made it. But we don't even know the half of it. When you're perplexed, you have the right to say, Holy Spirit, please show me what to do. Holy Spirit, I'm confused. I don't know which way to go. I'm counting on you to lead me. And he'll do it. So thank God for the leading of the Holy Spirit. The second privilege is freedom from fear. That's in verse 15. No more slavery, bondage, abject fear, or living in terror. All that is gone because we have received the spirit of sonship. Privilege number three, the right to call God Father. That's also in verse 15. And this is truly good news. Uh, You don't have to scream at God to get his attention. You simply say, Daddy, and he hears your voice. You whisper his name in the darkness, and he comes to your aid. I mean, every father knows when his children are speaking to him. The same is true with our Heavenly Father. And our fourth privilege is inward assurance, verse 16. John Calvin called this witness of the Spirit. Uh, I think the Latin word was testimonium. You as a believer have the right to expect that the Holy Spirit will give you inner assurance that you know Jesus. This is the peace that passes all understanding. Now, is that important? No, you bet, because Satan would like nothing better than to pull you down by causing you to doubt your own salvation. I mean, you can almost hear him whisper, you sorry so-and-so, you go to that church, you call yourself a Christian, yet look how you live. You're nothing but a fake, you're lousy, you're no good, you're rotten. But the Holy Spirit comes and says, you're not perfect, but you are a son of God. Jesus paid for your sins. You are a child of God. When the devil whispers in your ear, the Spirit speaks from deep within your heart to testify that you are indeed a child of God. And the fifth privilege is the right of heirship in God's family, verse 17. Now, we all understand what being an heir means in human terms. I mean, my will specifies that my children are my heirs. It specifies that after my death, they'll inherit all that I own. Now, why is that? Because I want to ensure that what I've worked for will be passed on to the members of my family. Now, I don't want my fortune, such as it is, to be given to people I don't know or who have no relationship to me. Now, God feels the same way. He wants the riches of heaven to go to the members of his family. When you trust Jesus, he writes you into his will. As a child of God, you now share in the family wealth, the riches of the universe. So we have three great gifts of the Spirit, 
a new mind, a new nature, and a new identity, and also one great obligation. And that one great obligation is found in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but not to the sinful nature, to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. These verses tell us two things about our obligation. First of all, we owe nothing to the flesh. Why? One, because we've been set free from the power of the flesh. We're no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. The flesh once controlled us, but now we're free. And two, because the flesh does us no good. I mean, consider the ministry of the flesh. It tempts us to do evil. It pulls us away from God. It wars continually against the Holy Spirit. You don't have to live in the flesh anymore because you don't owe your flesh anything. And second, we owe everything to the Holy Spirit. I once heard someone call Romans 8.13 the most important single verse on the spiritual life in the New Testament because it contains a beautiful balance. God's part, if by the Spirit, and our part, you put to death. Spiritual growth comes when we do our part as we realize we rely upon the Holy Spirit's enablement. Now, true spirituality is neither entirely passive, you know, the let go and let God, nor entirely active, you know, I've got to do this all by myself. This verse balances a moment-by-moment dependence upon the Spirit with a tough-minded attitude towards the flesh. Is the spiritual life dependent upon God or upon me? Well, the answer is, yeah, I, I can't do it without God, and God will not do it without me. That brings us back to our opening illustration about the car versus the elevated train. One operates on the storage principle, the other on the contact principle. The Christian life operates on the contact principle. I mean, just as the train moves forward as long as it stays in contact with the third rail, even so your spiritual life moves forward as you stay in constant contact with the Spirit. The whole question of the Spirit-filled life revolves itself into this. Are you keeping in contact with the Holy Spirit? Your job, your only real job as a Christian is to stay in contact with the Spirit, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Now let's talk about you and the Holy Spirit just for a moment. How well have you been staying in contact? Remember, there are only two ways to live, in the Spirit or in the flesh. Either you follow the dictates of your flesh and the sinful pull it exerts, or you follow the Holy Spirit of God, which leads you in paths of righteousness. Who have you been following this week? What power have you been living by this week? Too many of us would have to admit that we've been living too much in the flesh. Romans 8 makes one thing clear. Living by the Spirit is not automatic. A decision is required. You must choose to live by the Spirit's power. May the Spirit that lives in you embolden you to do just that. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.